1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Security researcher Malware Tech is arrested as the alleged author of the Kronos Banking Trojan... Carbonac hoods release Batulur into the wild, fishing in chain restaurant waters. A long DDoS attack in China seems aimed at extortion. German elections prepare for Russian influence operations, but the novelty may have worn off Moscow's line. U.S. states and DHS work toward cooperative cybersecurity, and the FBI is investigating the HBO hack. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, August 4th, 2017. It's said that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Sometimes what goes on elsewhere stays in Vegas, too. And sometimes it's you that does the staying. You'll recall that WannaCry was impeded back in May when its kill switch was inadvertently tripped by a security researcher who registered a domain name mentioned in WannaCry's code – That researcher, Marcus Hutchins, or Malware Tech as he likes to be known, enjoyed a minor hero's triumph and has taken a few victory laps since. The most recent lap was a small celebrity reception at DEF CON last week in Las Vegas. Unfortunately, on Wednesday, things went south in a hurry for Mr. Hutchins, age 23. The FBI picked him up and arrested him on a computer fraud and abuse charge. The Bureau was acting on an indictment a Wisconsin federal grand jury filed on July 11th of this year. The indictment alleges that sometime between July 2014 and July 2015, Hutchins and a conspirator, whose name has been redacted from the court documents made available publicly, advertised, sold, and received payment for the Kronos banking Trojan. Kronos first came to light when it was offered for sale in Russian language crimeware markets in July 2014. The asking price was some $7,000. Hutchins, who lives with his parents in Devon, England, is said to have been the author and maintainer of the malware. His name-redacted co-conspirator is alleged to have been the one who offered it for sale. Their preferred market was the recently shuttered Alphabay. The conspirators face six charges, one of computer fraud, one of wiretapping or aiding wiretapping, one of accessing a computer without permission, and finally, three charges of creating and distributing wiretapping technology. Hutchins is expected to enter his plea in a Nevada courtroom today. The charges could add up to 40 years in Club Fed, although a sentence of between five to ten years is thought likelier, should the innocent until proven guilty Mr. Hutchins eventually be convicted. Few would be prepared to argue that Kronos or other banking Trojans are good things, but the case is not necessarily a slam dunk, according to legal commentary in The Washington Post by George Washington University law professor Oren Kerr. The case may be an important one, since the indictment alleges violation of an infrequently used anti-wiretapping law. That law, 18 United States Code Section 2512, makes it a crime to make, sell, or advertise, quote, any electronic, mechanical, or other device, knowing or having reason to know that the design of such device renders it primarily useful for the purposes of the surreptitious interception of wire, oral, or electronic communications, end quote. The government's theory holds that devising and selling the malware count as purveying such a wiretapping device and doing so with guilty knowledge that it will be used in a prohibited way. There's other news of crimeware today. The hoods behind the familiar Carbonac Financial Advanced Persistent Threat are circulating another crimeware tool. Batalore is being used against targets in the hospitality industry. Batalore, which is distributed as the payload of a phishing email, is said to take screenshots and steal credentials. Chain restaurants in the U.S. appear most affected. Kaspersky Lab reports that the biggest DDoS attack so far this year, in terms of duration, was experienced by Chinese telecom operators. The attack lasted 277 hours, or more than 11 days. The attacker's motive appears to have been extortion. German federal elections are scheduled for next month, and, of course, Russian intelligence services are expected to attempt to influence or otherwise undermine them. Observers think such attempts unlikely to succeed. For one thing, the element of surprise is gone, with influence operations already factored into public opinion. In the U.S., the Department of Homeland Security reports that 33 states and 36 local governments sought cybersecurity assistance for 2016 elections. Longstanding well-known roadblocks, secrecy and security clearances continue to impede such assistance. In other U.S. news, investigations into Russian influence operations targeting the 2016 elections proceed as Special Prosecutor Mueller has moved to establish a grand jury – The administration is working to contain leaks. And Congress is making continued noises about misuse of intelligence collected against foreign targets but which contained information about U.S. citizens. And finally, the HBO hack is now under FBI investigation. Despite corporate assurance to the contrary, many still fear email doxing. The hackers have notoriously compromised unreleased Game of Thrones scripts. Security firms, including Panda and ESET, have warned people against downloading torrents containing stolen episodes, since torrents are notoriously polluted with malware. Some people complain that's a lot of security company FUD, and maybe they're right, but we know one thing. We'll just wait to watch the episodes over old-fashioned TV. We can wait. Anyway, we already know, winter is coming. That's vanta.com/slash cyber. Joining me once again is Emily Wilson. She's the director of analysis at Terbium Labs. Uh, Emily, you wanted to share a story that uh, came by recently about some gentlemen who were selling some guns online, ended up uh, being busted for that.
0: Yeah, I, I think this really caught my attention. You know, I see headlines from time to time, typically in Europe, of someone who's been caught with guns that they you know, believed were purchased on the dark web or sometimes a vendor who's going to sell them. Um, but what caught my attention recently was the story about a couple of vendors from uh, the old market, Black Market Reloaded. Right. This has been down for ages. This is not new. Um, it's been a few years now. And uh, these couple of vendors' charges are just being brought now against them for having sold guns on the dark web. And it's a reminder that this does happen. It, it doesn't happen often. It is fairly rare, certainly relative to other kinds of information, whether other kinds of goods and services, whether credit cards or drugs or what have you. But uh, interesting to see, uh, see the long tail of that, see it come around.
1: It strikes me that uh, certainly here in the United States, guns are not hard to get to buy or sell. That's fairly easy to uh, to do. So, what would drive someone to the dark web to set up a market there?
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think uh, you know a couple of things that come to mind. Not everyone is buying and selling in the U.S., so you may have a situation where it's really easy to get your hand on guns here, but. You know, makes more sense to sell them elsewhere, hmm. uh, or you may have people for whatever reason who would prefer to transact in something like this on the dark web. Whether they aren't sure how to tap into kind of a personal or a local network, if if they can't purchase guns for some reason somewhere else, and see this as a a good way to go about it, if if they think this is going to be safer, I think there are some similar arguments for. Uh, People who, you know, why would you choose to purchase drugs on the dark web? Guns are a little bit different, right? Most of these drugs are illegal. But I can certainly understand the appeal in theory of going through some sort of anonymous online service where it shows up at your door as opposed to needing to talk to that guy down the street.
1: And yet, even being on the dark web, they attracted the attention of law enforcement.
0: They do. They do. I saw something recently. uh, I think it came out of the U.K., so signs of terrorism include, you know, activity on the dark web. So, be careful using Tor.
1: <laughs> All right. Emily Wilson, thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. And they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. My guest today is William Saito. He's the special advisor to the Cabinet Office for the Government of Japan in charge of science and technology and information technology policy. The Summer Olympics are coming to Japan in 2020, and Mr. Saito has taken an active role in ensuring that Japan's cybersecurity posture is strong for the Games and beyond.
2: In the last six months, I think the reality of the Olympics is really hitting us. And obviously, there are a lot of things where our cybersecurity bureau has revamped the new laws so that we coordinate you know, various related agencies so that not only is the IT aspect, but the OT aspects are covered synchronously. But the other thing that we're doing that we put into plan last year that's being executed as of this spring. Is uh, HR development in the area of cyber? So we've allocated uh, several millions of dollars, 25 million more that are about getting at exchange rates, to train cybersecurity professionals in this area, not just for the Olympics, but you know, as a country in general.
1: Yeah, I, I saw in an article that you were quoted, you were talking about how um, when it comes to Japan, that it's not really a technical issue, that there are some human factors here.
2: Yeah, and I think that's actually true for a lot of countries. For a country like Japan, uh, we have a lot of great programmers. We have people that, you know, can quote-unquote, hack things and take things apart and are, are curious there. The issue that I see in many countries, but especially highlighted in countries like Japan, is the ability of the technical folks to communicate to the upper leadership and management type, and then vice versa. The unfortunate part in countries like Japan is, Lots of technical issues like cyber, they try to pawn off and and pretend that they don't know about because their studies may not have included anything in IT or science-related. So I'm finding that it's important to really cross-pollinate between the sciences, a.k.a. the STEM people, and the humanities, a.k.a. the management leadership people, so that they can talk to each other.
1: So they've established the uh, Industrial Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. Uh, Tell us about that.
2: Right. So obviously, we and most countries are lacking several thousands, if not tens of thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And since they don't form overnight, we had to pick and choose. And the area that we're focusing on with emphasis on the Olympics is the critical infrastructure that is either related or dependent on uh, cybersecurity. Every country defines critical infrastructure differently, but you could assume you know, the electrical industry, the finance industry, and so on the professionals there required to not only maintain the integrity of the system, to be able to respond correctly, and to put a, a defensive posture in place that management can agree on.
1: Are you in communications with any of the folks from Rio, Brazil, or are there any lessons that have been learned from that Olympics?
2: Yeah, so the Olympics uh, it has been a great opportunity. Uh, we've had our folks in the SOC at Rio I was in discussions and know lots of people, and we have lots of technical exchange between people in London as well. So the IOC, but the Olympic community, no one wants to see a bad Olympics, but there are lessons learned and there's no point reinventing the wheel. I think there are a lot of interesting outcomes, not only from Rio, but all the way back to London, that we learned from and we're building upon and are are obviously intended to share that to to whoever follows on the Olympics. But yeah, it's actually a close group of CISOs and cybersecurity professionals that really work with each other prior to one's own game. So Japan cybersecurity professionals have been working for more than four years with London and
1: Rio. And is there a sense that you'll be ready? My concern
2: is for japan not our ability to pull off the olympics i think uh honestly japan will have a perfectly fine Olympics. that'll go smoothly uh there won't be any really outstanding problems and stuff my real issue here is we're not doing cybersecurity for the sake of the olympics olympics is just one of the crossroads and what i want to take and use this opportunity is how do we become a more cyber resilient country and in doing so that we can better utilize ICT and greater efficiency greater productivity especially in a country like ours which is quickly aging and quickly shrinking and so one of the things that you see in uh, Japan and the, and the around the cabinet office are new posters we, we have the Olympic posters but the new posters say beyond 2020. And it's exactly that, you know, what happens to us as a country after 2020? And I think uh, IT and cyber will play a a critical role in that. And it's not just preparing for the Olympics, but what benefits do we reap post Olympics?
1: Japan is dealing with an aging population, as you mentioned, uh, and a shrinking population. So there are going to be fewer people around to take care of that aging population. And so you'll have to rely on technology and the security that goes with that.
2: Yeah, ironically, Terms like artificial intelligence, robotics, machine learning, those aren't buzzwords here. Uh, Those are terms that we really need to apply and we really need to use. These aren't things that are going to be in our next generation cell phones. These are going to be taking care of our parents and grandparents. Japan is, in some sense, going to be the most reliant on some of these cutting-edge technologies, not from a feature nice to have, but as a society must have. And in order to do so, it has to be safe and secure. So how do you not only create these safe and secure products and services, but vice versa? How do you create an environment that's safe and secure so that people can develop these new technologies and not have it go crazy or, or, or get sued because you know there's a breach or something? I mean, one of the things that we're trying to work on, don't know if it will pass, but the next session of our parliament, you know we will be creating uh, tax incentives for investments in cybersecurity and hopefully that will alleviate some of the issues and costs that are associated with the hesitation for you know companies and people to implement this
1: our thanks to william saito he's the special advisor to the cabinet office for the government of japan And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.
2: Hey, all, Rick here. At N2K Cyberwire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network.